0: This episode is sponsored by Audible, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash Serial Spoiler. We're also sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code Serial Spoiler. Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate Senior Editor Gabriel Roth, and joining me from our DC studio is Slate's Words correspondent, Katie Waldman. How's it going, Katie?
1: Hey, Gabe. How are you?
0: I'm good. In case you're joining us for the first time, not you, Katie, but listeners at home, this is the podcast where Katie and I discuss season two of Serial episode by episode, going deeper into the show's themes, exploring its characters and situations, and looking at the ways in which the podcast reverberates in the world. And this week, we have a lot of new material to discuss because Serial released a... A two-part episode this week, yesterday, Thursday, and today as we record Friday. The episode's called Hindsight, and Sarah Koenig told us it's her attempt to definitively answer the question of whether the decision to walk off post into the wilds of Afghanistan makes sense if your name is Bo Bergdahl. Katie, let's start there. Do we think these episodes answered that question?
1: Hmm. I, I want to pull a Bill Clinton and say, well, it depends what the meaning of sense is. I think that in the same way that there's sort of an internal coherence to a lot of fantasy or delusional worlds that uh, people construct for themselves, there is a logic that we saw playing out to uh, Bergdahl's decision when you learn more about his character. And I did think both of these episodes did a really great job showing us uh, what Beau was like growing up, talking to his childhood fran- friends and adoptive family, talking about his early experiences in the Coast Guard, and then in military training. You know, I started off uh, part one of the first episode um, where Sarah was expressing her own doubts that Bergdahl was telling the truth. And I was completely convinced um, that Bo had manufactured this story while he was in captivity to make himself seem a little bit less culpable, a little bit more uh, glorious or heroic. And by the end of, oh, actually by the end of part one, but certainly by the end of part two, I was absolutely convinced that he was living in a reality that didn't really correspond to our own, and one that overlapped uh, with our own in important ways. So that it doesn't foreclose the the need for possibly some reform in the military, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But um, what did you think, Gabe?
0: I thought yes, these episodes together did a really good job of giving us a sense of what Bo doll's inner world must have looked like, and. When you start seeing things from that perspective, then you can even this very dramatic and and nutty decision that he made to walk off post. Uh, you can see it in context, and it makes, as you said, I don't know that I, I would use the word sense exactly, but it at least has a context in which it it looks like the product of some sort of decision making, however however kooky. When this season of serial began. And, and we learned that Bo Bergdahl was saying he had walked off because of what he saw as uh, sort of incompetence and, and dangerous decision-making on the part of his commanding officers. I expected that, that this was going to lead to a kind of investigation of of practices on a troubled remote army outpost where things had gone awry, and and that would be the subject of a kind of uh, investigative reporting. And I think it turned out that no, the the things that were going on on the post were actually pretty standard behavior and and pretty standard practices for an army base. And in fact, what merited an investigation was this one troubled individual's psyche. It's a form that seemed more like a a, a magazine profile than what you usually get from a, a radio story.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating point. And I'm actually, I'm thrilled with this turn of events. Um, I did enjoy some of the bureaucratic machinations of people trying to get Bo back when he was uh, captured by the Taliban. But this recaptured sort of some of the uh, urgency of season one for me. I don't know if you felt that way.
0: I, I I did. I, urgency might not be the word that I would use because we're we're talking about something that happened a while ago and the outcome of which has has been resolved, except for the the military the military trial. But certainly, I found it compelling. Going deeper into Bo Bergdahl's psychological makeup I found very interesting. I was struck by the way the producers chose to structure these two episodes. We start, as you said, by looking at his childhood, talking to people from his hometown, getting a sense of what kind of a kid and what kind of an adolescent he was and the the slightly weird way he was raised. Uh, and then in this episode, we get this reveal about two-thirds of the way through, I think, that he had been diagnosed uh, with uh, Schizotypal Personality Disorder. And that seems like an important piece of information that gave us a lot of context and that, was with, that Sarah Koenig and the producers chose to withhold until uh, most of the way through this two-part episode. What do you think about that decision?
1: Um, I was very grateful for the way that she parceled out this uh, tidbit of information. I thought that... The show did a really great job clarifying and illuminating Beau's character without the medical jargon, uh, which is not to dismiss schizotypal personality disorder or science or mental health of uh, the establishment, but... I mean, it was as if someone had slapped a label on Bo that said, oh, he has Bo Bergdahlism. Like, those symptoms, when they were described earlier before we knew about the official diagnosis, to me, I was already thinking, like, oh, he sounds like he has some kind of personality disorder, some mental illness. You know, I've been reading uh, John Ray's Low Boy, which is about a schizophrenic teenager, and a lot of the same habits of thought, the sort of sense of the various parts of the universe working in sinister concert and just the sort of half logical uh, flight from thought to thought and the romance like all of that seemed very familiar. And I appreciated that we absolutely got the meaning of what this disorder meant. Without actually getting the name for it until pretty late in the game, as you point out, um, I thought that they handled that really sensitively and well.
0: I like that description, talking about the, the meaning of the disorder in, in, in terms of what it means for him as a human being as opposed to... To a a, a diagnosis. When I was listening to yesterday's episode, to the first part of this two part episode, uh, I found myself thinking, oh, I get it. He's one of those guys, one of those won't play by society's rules kind of guys. Most of us, especially during adolescence, have run into that kind of figure. It's usually a a man or a, a teenage boy. It's someone who sort of feels the need to think through everything for himself rather than to do the conventional thing or do the the socially acceptable thing or the thing that everybody else is doing. Uh, And then in this episode, there's a moment when he sends an email with the subject line, who is John Galt? (laughs) Yes and oh right and you can hear clouds parted yeah
1: and the revelation the light of revelation
0: poured through (laughs) and you can hear sarah koenig having that exact same moment oh right he's an ayn rand guy jesus and yeah
1: and actually i gotta say i had a total beau bergdahl moment and went good grief
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's almost depressing When you hear that, you realize, oh, we know those guys. We probably went to high school and college with some of them, and then we know them on the Internet, and they're so annoying. And now here's one of them. And, you know, if you're like at a party and you're talking to somebody and they start talking to you about Ayn Rand, then you're just trying to get away from them at the party, and that's all it is. It's just a guy being annoying to you at a party. If you're an Ayn Rand guy and, and you're at a remote outpost in Afghanistan, it turns out that you have the ability to create an international incident. And <laughs> and then we have to, like, give up five prisoners from Guantanamo in order to release you from the Taliban.
1: Yeah. And also a reader, you know, like you can almost imagine this story being sort of like a Madame Bovary type novel where you have this susceptible, fragile, um, sensitive person reading and absorbing all these narratives, and suddenly those narratives become part of your mental architecture, and it destroys your life. And I was just really struck by the potent and, like, totally poisonous, terrible cocktail of um, Ayn Rand and Bruce Lee and the samurai code of honor. And I was just thinking, like, if you don't have some kind of filter for processing all these things and you're a loner and you don't get a lot of feedback from the rest of society and, you know, you're idealistic. Like, it just sounds like a complete disaster.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the kind of tragedy that happens to a lot of people. It happened to people that I knew as a teenager and and it happens all the time. And mostly we don't hear much about it because mostly they don't make the news in this way. Mostly they they just wind up destroying their own lives or or the lives of some of the people around them. Whereas in this case, then they they sent the U.S. Army on a manhunt through (laughs) Afghanistan and Pakistan. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free thirty-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash serialspoiler and browse the over one hundred and eighty thousand audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash serialspoiler, that's audible.com slash serialspoiler, and get started today. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If you're interested in more American military intrigue, you might consider The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top secret military research agency, by Annie Jacobson, the true story of the Defense Department's most secret, most powerful, and most controversial military science R&D agency. Start your free trial today by going to audible.com slash serial spoiler.
1: Can I ask a question about, um, I'm going to put you in the armchair psychologist armchair. Go, do it. For a second. Does it puzzle you at all that... Um, like the attraction to violence in his personality seems so incongruous with all the other stuff, like the very solemn moral standards and the desire to help and the desire to protect. We learn that he stashed weapons around the tea house (laughs) where he worked um, just because he wanted to make sure he had some kind of mode of defense on him at all times. Uh, He used to punch bricks and blocks of wood to strengthen his hands. He loved the idea of kung fu. And it just really struck me that like, he seemed like such a gentle, kind, sensitive guy this entire time. And then there's this really strange piece that's like an obsession with violence in the military.
0: I hear what you're saying. I don't perceive that as an incongruity. I don't see a discrepancy between having a very... Sort of severe and self-important and slightly grandiose um, moral code. I don't, I don't see a discrepancy between that and being attracted to particular forms of physical strength and violence. What it makes me think of is something we learned in an earlier episode when Bo Bergdahl was first in Afghanistan, and. There were beds and he chose to take the mattress off of his bed and sleep on the bed frame because he didn't think it was tough enough or grueling enough. And that kind of valorization of physical hardship and personal suffering and things like that, that seems to connect pretty closely with things like the samurai code and fetishization of of violence and weaponry. If you add to that... The paranoid tendencies, the the sense that you're always under some kind of physical threat, that you're always in danger. And the fact that when you're on an army base in Afghanistan, you actually are in some kind of physical danger pretty much all the time. And so I can see a kind of fixation on violence um, getting more, uh, becoming more intense in that kind of situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've, yeah, you've persuaded me that it's not surprising, but it's still sort of, interesting to me to see the juxtaposition of his delicacy, like his psychic delicacy, it seems. I hope that doesn't sound insulting to him. And this kind of brutal impulse. It does kind of remind me we got a really interesting listener tweet. This tweet suggested that The Beau Bergdahl narrative is about toxic masculinity. Um, And I do think that we learn that he is someone who always wants to improve himself, who wants to succeed, who wants to show his friends and family that he's not a failure, that he's actually almost a hero. And unfortunately, the way that um, men succeed still today often is to show physical prowess and violent physical prowess. So just wanted to shout out to that tweeter, because I do think that toxic uh, standards of masculinity play a role here.
0: The other thing that brings up for me is Bo's parents, who we learned about a little bit in in the first of this two-part episode. Uh, We had heard from them earlier, and they had politely declined to participate in Serial. Uh, What we do learn is it seems like Bergdahl got his sense of himself as an outsider, as separate from the rest of society in some way from his upbringing, that he wasn't put in regular schooling. He he was isolated. He had to figure out a lot of things for himself. His parents come across maybe as people who similarly are not bound by social convention in the way that most of us are and they seem to have given him a strange upbringing it's obviously um we're not really in a position to talk about the etiology of his personality disorder or anything like that but um it it does seem like first of all that would be a difficult environment to be raised in especially if you had a a tendency towards that kind of uh schizotypal personality
1: Yeah. And I think actually it's interesting you talk about how they forced him to figure things out for himself. And it struck me, and I think actually Koenig made this point as well, that walking off the base or walking off his post, that was a grand gesture, sure. But it was also an experiment, sort of in the same league as when Bo would tape his mouth shut for two days to see what happened or... We learned that he liked to push boundaries when he had arguments with Kim and Kayla Harrison, and keep pushing just to see how far it would go. Um, and it does seem like he he likes to test the waters, push boundaries, maybe because he doesn't he can't be sure that he will get feedback from the people in his life um, without sort of forcing himself into into their path.
0: There's something so sort of uh, immediately appealing about the idea of a person who has to discover things for himself and doesn't just accept what he's told and doesn't blindly go along with the conventional way of doing things. That, When you, when you think about that, then that in the abstract seems sort of admirable. But in real life, what that describes is antisocial behavior, right? It's a person being weird and disruptive and bothering people and not – doing what he's supposed to do. And, and in real life, when we encounter people like that, then, then we usually find them very off-putting. One thing you can definitely say is that a person like that probably should not be enlisting in the military, that that's just a, a recipe for disaster. What do you think about the question of whether the, the army should have accepted Bo when he enlisted?
1: Yeah. He had an anxiety attack or some sort of breakdown when he was in training for the Coast Guard. And he was separated. That's the term of art. Uh, for that situation. He was separated from the Coast Guard. And in order to reenlist in any type of military branch, he would have needed a waiver that said, no, it's okay, you can let him back in. And he pretty effortlessly secured a waiver in part because the army was so hungry for uh, troops gearing up for the surge in Afghanistan. And uh, the question is, should he have gotten that waiver? And should the people who reenlisted him have looked more closely at his background? And it seems like they followed the protocols um, and there was no negligence, really. But the system did seem a little cursory. And I think the investigating officer, Dahl, also said that in a more perfect world, uh, the Army would be a little bit more attentive to the psychological health of the people attempting to enroll. So I- I'm with him on that.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of uh, the great Donald Rumsfeld uh, and and mm. his remark about you, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. He, he said that I think in 2005 when he was defending the fact that troops in Iraq didn't have like basic body armor or armored vehicles and they were getting blown up all the time because the army wasn't provisioning them with, with the appropriate equipment. What a guy. Um, A corollary to that is that when when you need a a ton of troops in a hurry, then you just can't be selective. And the the, um, incentives for recruiters are always going to be in the direction of getting as many bodies as possible into the military. And if we're going to have a volunteer military, if we're not going to conscript people and at the same time we're going to engage in these massively manpower-oriented campaigns in multiple countries at once, you're going to wind up taking some people who – (laughs) <laughs> might be on the bubble. And it turns out that one of them can cause a great deal of trouble. So I think, you know, you could probably point to a recruiter or a, a army supervisor who should have weeded out this particular uh, recruit. But I think more broadly, you have to accept that this is the, the price of doing business. And, and if it causes this much damage, then maybe we, we need to look at, at what kind of military adventures we're getting involved in.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also fair to say that it wasn't all Bergdahl's fault. Like, it seemed like there were some sort of dicey practices happening at MAST. It certainly seems like some of the missions that they were assigned, like the retrieving the broken equipment, was needlessly dangerous. I don't know. And and it did seem like the commanding officers were careless with the men's mental health and didn't really offer the words of encouragement and support that they should have
0: before we move on a word from our sponsor this episode is sponsored by harry's harry's is the shaving company that offers a german-engineered five-blade cartridge you'll get a close comfortable shave no cuts and burns plus the quality is guaranteed harry's will give you a full refund if you're not happy Harry's offers factory direct prices. They cut out the middlemen and ship right to your door. That means they can sell their blades at half the price of the leading brand. Over one million guys have already made the switch and thousands more switch every day. So why pay $32 for an eight pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? The Harry's starter set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. If those prices aren't already low enough for you, we've worked out a special offer. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code Cereal Spoiler. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter Cereal Spoiler at checkout.
1: I thought one of the more interesting questions in this two-parter episode was um, by spotlighting uh, the personality disorder part of this story, are we allowing ourselves to take uh, Bergdahl's complaints less seriously and sort of giving the military situation in Afghanistan a free pass?
0: You're raising the question that Mark Bowl raised with Sarah Koenig towards the end of the second episode where he said, just because we have a a psychological diagnosis for him, does that mean we no longer take him seriously as a guy with an opinion? So do you take him seriously as a guy with an opinion?
1: The problem is I, like Sarah Koenig, am a dyed-in-the-wool civilian, so I feel like I don't even know enough about what best practices for the military are to weigh in here. But from what he says... I could see even a slightly more tethered-to-reality person reacting badly to what he dealt with. Like, I don't think that a lot of his complaints are crazy at all. I also think that what he did is crazy.
0: Yeah. I uh, I found something weird about Mark Bowl raising that question just because, like, a guy with an opinion, is that— really an important thing? Even if we discount the, the idea that he had a mental disorder, uh, does the fact that he did this dangerous and illegal thing give his opinion any particular validity? Like, isn't he the equivalent of someone who does a dramatic stunt in order to draw attention to a particular cause? And is that really how we should be evaluating opinions and causes is by the, the, the drama of the stunt that the advocates are willing to, to perform in order to bring it to our attention?
1: No, but I don't think that now that we are paying attention to his story, that we should discount things that seem like credible complaints, if, if they seem credible.
0: No, of course, that's true. I, I I guess I also feel like, well, of course, if you're in the army, then your life is in danger and your commanding officers are assholes to you. Uh, and, and that's the way our military is set up. And I... I, I I don't know if, is there a better way to set up a military? I mean, probably. But military service has been not only destroying people's lives, but destroying their minds and and their mental health since the beginning of war. You know, you can read about it in the Iliad. And the fact that in this particular outpost in Afghanistan that, that these men's lives were put in danger and then their commanding officers were assholes to them about it instead of being appropriately sympathetic about it. Uh, I mean, I don't like that either, but I, I'm not surprised by it. And, and I, I sort of feel like, well, then your problem is with the U.S. Army as a whole rather than with a particular commanding officer or a particular set of, of command decisions.
1: Sure. And I think that that was a big uh, miscalculation on Bergdahl's part as he felt disenchanted with the entire reality that he found himself in. And he scapegoated several commanding officers and seemed to still think that his dream was tenable, maybe at some other post, whereas really, as you pointed out, this was par for the course. This was the normal for uh, serving in the army.
0: Yeah, what a sad story and on that note that's it for this episode we'll be back in two weeks following the release of Serial's next episode unless of course they change the production schedule again thanks for bearing with our updated schedule this week please keep your responses coming to Serial Special at gmail.com where you can send us emails or voice memos the Slate serial spoiler special is produced by Sam Dingman. We're a production of Slate's Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us in iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply.
1: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.